Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Shahid Buttar, who is running for Congress against Nancy Pelosi. Uh, wishing him very well in that. Of course, uh, the website you need to check out is shahidforchange.us. S-H-A-H-I-D for F-O-R change.us. Shahid, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much for having me, David. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen you. I'm familiar with uh, lots of great work, uh, advocacy work and and artistic work that you've done uh, for progressive campaigns, uh, issued campaigns. Uh, now you're, this is the first time, as far as I know, that you're running for public office. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, this is really uh, the I've long worked on different issue campaigns, the peace movement, the anti-globalization movement, uh, the immigrant rights movement, the movement for digital civil liberties, and uh, you know the right to privacy in the face of the mass surveillance regime. I've worked on LGBT rights, um, and <clears throat> having done a lot of that issue-based activism over the course of the last 15 years, watching America's most progressive city be represented by someone who ultimately uh, has enabled the Trump administration's war on the Constitution was just too much for me to bear, and I couldn't do it from the sidelines. So throwing my hat into the electoral arena for the first time. Not to mention the Obama administration and the George W. Bush administration and on back, right? Exactly. Yeah, the continuity across the bipartisan corporate establishment is is really uh, the, the theme that pervades our campaign platform. You know, I'm con- I'm concerned about the corporate co-optation of healthcare policy, of military policy, of drug policy, uh, of campaign finance, and, and of all of these issues. You know, the central challenge confronting our nation today is the control by corporations over our public policy, and that just has to stop. Democrats have not been particularly uh, assertive in offering Americans an alternative. And, and that's what I'm running to do, is to offer an alternative to corporate bipartisan corporate corruption in Washington. It, it, this seems like it ought to be the model in, in a representative government. Somebody spends years becoming a leader and an expert on different issues, working as an advocate uh, on issues, and then runs for office, as opposed to, you know, goes to law school, uh, promises wealthy people they'll do whatever they're told, and then runs for office. I mean, that that seems like the wrong, <laughs> the wrong approach. But uh, so, but you're, you're running in, a, in an open primary, right? And, and so it's not really a question of a, of a party primary. It's, it's whoever are the first two out of all the candidates. That's exactly right. California has an interesting model for House elections. It's an open primary and a jungle primary, meaning that whereas in a lot of places, each party nominates its candidate, and the candidate from each party that takes first goes to the general election. Here in San Francisco, the way it works is we've got all the different candidates from all the different parties are facing off against each other, and the top two candidates from all the different parties will be the ones in the general election in November. Uh, So what that means is that while running to Pelosi's left, uh, because her voting record has been so devoid of principle, I have also the opportunity to run to her right and to mobilize support across the partisan continuum uh, for our campaign. And just to spell that out, while I'm running to Pelosi's left on issues like uh, climate change, on issues like 
uh, spending priorities in the face of the military-industrial complex, my platform planks that would, for instance, seek a warrant requirement for domestic NSA, FBI, and DEA searches could plausibly be read as a conservative position um, to conserve our civil liberties in the face of a radical erosion of them that the bipartisan corporate establishment has uh, facilitated. Similarly, my line on drug policy, which aims to uh, not only decriminalize but fully legalize cannabis at the federal level as a civil rights imperative, also could be read as a conservative position to the extent it's liberty enhanced. Um, and I do think that that platform, which eschews some of the traditional partisan divisions and really front loads the interests of working Americans across our different communities, across our different political stripes, I, I have some hope that despite the uh, stranglehold on our democracy by the corporate parties, that I might have an opportunity to bring some new voters to the polls uh, yeah. and shake things up a little bit here in San Francisco. In the the issue of, of military and war and peace is, of course, one that I care a lot about. And I've, I've not seen a Republican candidate for Congress with a website in the past couple of years that didn't sort of celebrate hatred of foreigners and, and immigrants and cheer for more wars. And I've not seen a Democratic candidate for Congress with a website that's even mentioned the existence of the under, other 96% of humanity, foreign policy, military spending. I mean, just not mentioned, doesn't exist, right? 60% of right. what they're going to vote on, but doesn't exist. And, and so to go to your website, shahidforchange.us, and you say, not only admit that military spending exists, but say you want to count, cut it, uh, which agrees with public opinion polls, uh, you know, the majority of people in the United States, not just San Francisco, want to cut it. Uh, but then, of course, my question is, how much do you want to cut it? Great question. I want to cut it as much as we need to secure social services. I take a lot of inspiration here from President Eisenhower and the fact that the Supreme Allied Commander of the Victorious Forces in World War II, two-term U.S. President, saw fit to dedicate his last address to the American people in office as a very dire warning that democracy in the United States would be threatened by the combination of profit-seeking enterprises <clears throat> serving military interests was incredibly important historically, and it's incredibly important now, because Eisenhower's warning explained not only <clears throat> the co-optation of our federal budget and our taxpayer dollars by the military-industrial complex, but also the, the constitutional crisis and the war on your and my and all of your listeners' rights by agencies, including the NSA uh, and the FBI. Warrantless surveillance is an incredibly expensive, profit-laden enterprise, uh, just like corporate weapons manufacturing. Yeah. Um, there are a couple places where I think the military budget uh, especially needs to be addressed. Uh, the very first program that I would like to take an ax to is the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, which is a quintessential example of fraud, of waste, of procurement malpractice, to quote a Navy procurement official. And this is a program that has no strategic rationale, will cost a trillion with a T and a half dollars over the life cycle of the program. And I think it's really hard for people to envision what a trillion dollars means. But if we cut the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, we could have Medicare for all in this country. We could have a substantial increase in HUD block grants to address the affordable housing housing crisis in urban centers around the country. 
a trillion and a half dollars will take you a long way. And I want to particularly make two points here, if I may. One, a lot of Americans, particularly Republicans, but I think others too, might be inclined to, for instance, um, argue that we should support our troops. And I wanted to just make clear that the military does not spend our taxpayer dollars on supporting our troops. Uh, there are 10% of the Americans that are homeless around the country are military veterans, and the money that our taxpayer uh, dollars go to the Pentagon but are fundamentally misappropriated. And if we support our troops, we should be supporting expansions and VA benefits to get every veteran a roof over their head, which we could do if we cancel fraudulent and failed corporate weapons contracts like the one undergirding the F-35. You know, our nation has a greater interest in housing veterans than we do in sending the children of Lockheed Martin executives to fancy ski vacations. Um, and then just the other point I want to make here is that programs like the F-35, high-tech, fancy corporate weapon systems, lack a strategic rationale of any kind, because we know at the moment that the greatest threat to U.S. national security, greatest threat, I'll name three, to U.S. national security are climate change, which the Pentagon has recognized, culture and election hacking, which is very much the object of emphasis in Washington at the moment, and our criminally kleptocratic president, who, you know, at various points has been essentially goading different powers into unnecessary conflicts. You can't fight any of those things with a fighter. So, you know, we're wasting a trillion and a half dollars on a program that has no rationale, is an object of fraud, and we have vital social needs that need to be addressed. And in my mind, that is the central issue confronting our country, is securing social services by battling the military-industrial complex, and that's an interest that cuts across party and across the country. Well, I couldn't possibly agree more. Very well said. Uh, dramatically different and better answer than I could get out of Nancy Pelosi if she would come on my program. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but still... But still but still not any more of an answer than I would get out of her in terms of how much you would cut the military budget, right? I mean, if you were to introduce a bill to, to reduce, to put a cap on the military spending, uh, how much would you reduce it by? You know, at the moment, we're spending uh, something on the order of $600 billion a year uh, on, on military purposes. But rather than set a cap on the military budget, I'd like to identify particular line items like the F-35, uh, for instance, like U.S. military bases in foreign countries. Yeah. Closing U.S. military bases in foreign countries could save up to $200 billion a year. Uh, and that not only would secure, uh, you know, release funds available then to fund social services, but it would also have a very dramatic impact on our climate emissions. Um, the particular amount that the F-35 uh, savings would be per year, we haven't yet researched, but a trillion and a half dollars over the life cycle of the program, I think, is significant. Um Again, I haven't, okay. I haven't set a, a, a firm cap on what I would support for the military, but I am very interested in carving out line items to recover those funds for, for more pressing needs. Okay. Well, that's a good answer. Although I would say that it's not 600 for the Pentagon, it's 700 billion now and rising fast each year, uh, not counting a couple hundred billion more for nukes in the Energy Department and militarism in the State Department and the Homeland Security Department and on and on and debt for past wars and, and veterans costs. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's twice what they tell us it is. But uh, just before we go on to lots of other topics, uh, among the line items that I would have hoped to see on your website would have been some of the wars. Are, are there any wars you would end? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's never been a military fund 
trust that the incumbent does not support it. And, you know, I've been opposed to war generally my entire life. You know, I've been arrested trying to stop the war in Iraq. I've been outspoken about stopping new wars. I do certainly think that we need to consider, in the same way that the F-35 will cost a trillion and a half over its life cycle, we need to consider the life cycle costs of war, which are far greater than what policymakers are generally willing to accept, you know, and that includes the cost of veterans coming home with shattered minds and shattered lives. It includes the epidemic of suicides that are plaguing military families uh, among people who return from conflict. It also includes the, the carbon emission of a Pentagon that is run amok around the country, and it particularly includes the deaths of innocents from other countries that our wars inevitably leave in their wake. And I think that there are <clears throat> particular uh, problems with all of our interventions, um, and there are different problems in each of those interventions, and I would like to see them end. As a member of Congress, you know, we don't have the authority to necessarily order the military, but we do have authority in our oversight capacity and as legislators to ask the questions that aren't being asked and to make funding decisions. <clears throat> I've actually been arrested in a Senate hearing chamber for asking a question that no member of Congress has ever had the independence to raise, particularly about the crisis <clears throat> in the rule of law illustrated by the NSA mass surveillance regime. Uh, but with respect to, respect to uh, our, our, our wars, I really would like to pose some questions of executive officials under oath about the strategic rationale. In Afghanistan, we've been at war for over a decade, and there is no clear road to victory in sight. Uh, and the idea that that conflict has a military resolution defies every piece of evidence to the contrary. Uh, it would seem from our foreign policy and our military policy as if the United States learned nothing from Vietnam. And those are lessons that I would seek to make very clear, uh, both in the oversight context and in the legislative one. Uh, I certainly would not be uh, voting for increases uh, for particular conflicts in the military budget, and I would be looking for, again, line items to defund uh, in the military. As a legislator eager to end war, that's about the most one can do, but I'm very eager to do everything within uh, my capacity, and as I have been for, as an individual, um, that I would like to be able to do as an office holder to, to bring an end to these conflicts. Yeah. And, and quite frankly, save some lives. Well, there are limits to what one Congress member can do. He or she has to organize their colleagues, right? But uh, under the War Powers Resolution, uh, my former uh, employer for a short time, Dennis Kucinich, used to almost routinely introduce resolutions to force votes in the House on whether to end a war. And mm -hmm. as, as you know, in the Senate, they are now un undertaking that process for the first time in U.S. history, forcing a vote in the Senate on whether to end the war on Yemen. I mean, if Congress says, thou shalt not spend a dime on such and such war, that ends that war under the U.S. Constitution. I mean, Congress is not constitutionally, con Congress's role is not just to sort of be a, a, a bunch of people who ask questions, right? I mean, Congress is, is actually the decider on these things, according to the Constitution, right? Of course. No, and the War, war Powers Act uh, and the responsibility of Congress to to, to make decisions about whether or not to declare war is a crucial zone for Congress and members of Congress to defend in the face of a litany of presidents who have essentially undermined it by waging war essentially unilaterally without congressional approval. Uh, you know, the last president to try this 
unsuccessfully, was President Obama, who tried to initiate a war in Syria uh, without congressional approval. And thankfully, that stopped. The war in Yemen is an ongoing humanitarian travesty. Um, and I do think absolutely that our, our not just military, this is, this is where I um, would maybe suggest some, some subtleties. It, we do need to have accountability. I think that the accountability for some of these conflicts lies not only within the Defense Department and the military, but also in our civilian leadership, which is why I also favor uh, seeking the impeachment of the president and the vice president. Um, you know, we need to have uh, sane leadership at the top. And I have a great deal of empathy for military service members who might have essentially been conscripted in a poverty draft, you know, seeking educational opportunity, who are then sent off to some foreign theater in an unnecessary conflict uh, and are put in, you know, untenable positions. And and the people uh, with whom the responsibility for those decisions lie, uh, they're, you know, they're outside the military apparatus. So I absolutely would be a force in Congress to organize among my colleagues, I'd be seeking creative opportunities to put these questions before the House, uh, and I think it's particularly important. that The reason I raise oversight, you're absolutely right that members of Congress uh, are not supposed to be merely question askers, but the hearing, the legislative hearings provide opportunities for um, visibility about concerns that otherwise might, for instance, escape the press. And many of the issues that we're talking about for better or worse, we're entirely predictable. It's not like no one guessed that the war in Iraq would be a debacle. We all knew that. We were saying it for months before the invasion. And, you know, yet still the people who have made such predictably bad decisions um, in the civil service remain in place. You know, obviously there's been a lot of turnover in the uh, uh, civilian leadership of the executive branch since then. But we we need very much to examine these questions closely in public. And I think one of the biggest issues there is to seek transparency in the face of otherwise essentially secret decision-making. And transparency through the oversight process, I think, could go a long way towards helping galvanize the consensus across Congress to make, for instance, more assertive funding decisions, to make more assertive policy decisions. I think the oversight process is one key um, to that broader project. Yeah, we, we're speaking with Shahid Buttar. The website is shahidforchange.us. I was very glad to, to hear you bring up impeachment because I was, of course, going to ask you about that. Uh, and this is my biggest concern with Nancy Pelosi is that she is such a strong advocate for keeping presidents around, for keeping George W. Bush around right. in order to, quote unquote, oppose him, for keeping uh, Donald Trump around. Uh, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, Rahm Emanuel, you may recall, in January 07 said, no, we're not going to end the war. Everybody just gave us the, the majorities in Congress to end. We're going to keep it going so we can oppose it two years from now in another election. It, to my mind, this is Nancy Pelosi's clear and transparent strategy is to keep Donald Trump in office in order to be the people who are not Donald Trump and not have to be anything better than that, uh, while at the same time focusing all the opposition to Donald Trump around uh, the disastrous uh, policy of, of Russiagate rather than uh, the endless list of what I see as the top impeachable offenses. Am I, am, am I being paranoid here, or what do you think her, her goal is? I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, whether it was George W. Bush or whether it's Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, unfortunately, uh, is much more willing to speak about resistance than to actually demonstrate it. Uh, and, you know, one reason I think uh, uh, the 
folks who've been excited by my candidacy are excited about it is because they recognize that I have the resistance for me as a way of life. It's not just a hashtag to conveniently rally under. Um, you know, I came out of law school the year that the United States invaded Iraq, and my law school experience included the 9-11 attacks and the Bush versus Gore decision. My entire legal career has been bound up in resistance. Um, and in fact, even my, my, my life prior to, to going to law school at Stanford was bound up in resistance of, of a different sort. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, I look at the Democratic leadership's appeasement of militaristic presidents as you know, a threat to the republic. And it, and it presents particularly a couple interesting um, flips. For instance, every member of Congress throws an oath of office to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And the greatest domestic threats to our Constitution tend to be presidents and executive agents. And when faced with those threats, even despite swearing oaths, members of Congress seem to be, for better or worse, entirely absent. And, and I do think that's absolutely a problem. Now, with respect to President Trump and Vice President Pence, um, there are uh, an endless list of impeachable offenses. And while Democrats focus on Russiagate, I think the, the real question here, in my mind, the Emoluments Clause is the stronger basis on which to seek the impeachment of the president, because it's quite clear, I think, to anyone paying any shred of attention that President Trump's interest in office is much more about self-enrichment than it is about governance. Yep. Uh, and, and that is a constitutional crime, full stop. I, I would also say it's important if we seek the impeachment of President Trump to also seek the impeachment of President, uh, Vice President Pence, because if, if, if the vice president becomes the president due to the removal of Trump, there is a danger that we have leaped from a frying pan into the fire. Uh, you know, one of the sole saving graces of this administration is that it's incompetent might be enough to keep the American people from its worst. That's no comfort to the rest of the world, for instance, that is doomed, for instance, to rising oceans due to our belligerence on climate, uh, or the people in other countries where our military is continuing uh, grinding offenses um, that, that could be ended. Uh, you know, it's, it's very important to make sure that impeachment proceedings capture the uh, both figures at the top of the administration, and I think the self-enrichment of the president um, in particular, uh, provides a compelling, strong ground with respect to, to his actions. And I think the beneficiary um, of potential foreign intervention in our election, the beneficiaries of that intervention include not only the president, but the vice president as well. Well, I, I'm not with you on the on the notion that Russia determined the outcome of any election, but uh, I, I am with you on a on a doubleheader impeachment uh, for uh, a dozen or more charges that don't involve Russia, um, but do involve the Constitution. Um, just just to play devil's advocate, though, I think if you if you were to impeach and remove Trump and have a President Pence facing the legitimate threat of a popular, uh, a popularly inspired uh, impeachment uh, and removal should he step out of line, that would be an improvement over a President Trump 
who clearly flaunts his absolute impunity. Uh, and, and, and if you take the two of them, uh, the, the immediate objection is going to be, well, who's third in line? <laughs> they're not, you know, they're no good either. And then you can go down through the list, uh, and none of them are any good. So, I mean, at some point you have to, you have to say, well, this is enough impeachments. The threat of impeachment is going to have to carry us forward, right? I mean, I do think there's a lot to be said for the threat of impeachment, which is one reason why Nancy Pelosi taking it off the table is so problematic, because executive officials <clears throat> who abuse the public trust and commit constitutional crimes should fear removal from office. That's an absolutely uh, <clears throat> legitimate tactic for Congress to pursue. Quite frankly, it's a necessary one for Congress to pursue, uh, given how deeply corruption threatens the republic at the moment. I mean, historically, the kinds of corruption I've been concerned about was, you know, the, the sort of corruption when corporations wield control over our public policy. With President Trump in office, the kind of corruption we have to fear is, is uh, you know, layers worse, particularly because it's like first-order self-enrichment corruption. You know, every time the president uh, yeah. goes to Mar-a-Lago and brings his Secret Service with him to stay at his hotel, that is self-enrichment. It's sure. basically taking taxpayer dollars and putting it in his pocket every time he has a conference and invites foreign dignitaries to do a meeting at one of his hotels, or every time he, um, you know, uses his uh, um, social media presence to to promote official gatherings at one of his properties. You know, this is a perfect example of first order corruption. You know, it's the kind of corruption that it doesn't take a genius to recognize. Yeah, um, and yet still, Nancy Pelosi won't. Uh, pursue uh, the process that the founders of our country built into the Constitution, anticipating these kinds of possibilities. Um, I think it's absolutely important that we that we that we seek impeachment of the president. With respect to the vice president, um, you know that might be a place for us to uh, constructively disagree. Again, I think that he should be included in impeachment proceedings. I do fear a President Pence to some extent more than I do a President Trump. I mean, the one thing you could say. Uh, for, for President, uh, pardon me, for Vice President Pence, is that he's held office before, and so perhaps he's uh, less a maniac than the president. Um, I fear, though, as a progressive, that a President Pence would be dramatically more effective in advancing his agenda than uh, you know the fool we have at the top now. Yeah. Um, and, and that's one reason why I particularly would hope to see him encompassed within impeachment proceedings should they move forward, because. Uh, again, removing removing Trump and leaving the vice president in place could be a leap out of a frying pan in, well, into a worse situation. Well, I, I fear any president in an era without impeachment more than I fear particular personalities. But we've got about a minute left, and I, and I wanted to ask you, in, in a system that is corrupt, including in its elections, you're running on a campaign that includes reforming elections, uh, but you're trying to win within the current election system. Uh, this will be a wonderful test, I think, of whether this can be done, because you're going to be an outstanding candidate. But can it be done? I, we will find out, and I certainly hope so. I do think that Americans across our various places and across our political stripes recognize that corruption also includes uh, the erosion of the legitimacy of our political process. And you can see that in campaign finance inequities. You can see that in gerrymandering, the process through which legislators choose who their constituents are instead of letting their their constituents choose who we will be. Yep. Uh, and you also see it in voter suppression and the litany of measures passed by Republican legislators to deny Americans access to the ballot. I'll note that Democrats have been largely unhelpful 
in defending voting rights and the novel prescription I would have to address campaign finance inequities, gerrymandering, prison gerrymandering, which is a separate problem that in some respects is even worse, um, and vote suppression at once would be to extend federal antitrust statutes to encompass political markets in addition to economic markets. That would give federal judges a broad statutory basis to intervene and guard fairness and competition in the electoral process. I think that that Shahid, prescription It's, a, it's could, an incredibly creative and wonderful idea, competition in political markets. We should do a whole show on it. I wish we weren't already over time. Uh, we've been speaking with Shahid <laughs> Buttar. Shahidforchange.us is the website. Shahid, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me, David. It's always great to talk with you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.